Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, that passage that we just heard so eloquently read by TJ, Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll get there here in just a bit. Uh, fair warning, uh, last night, uh, due to uh, lingering sinus infections in our household, as well as thunderstorms in the area, uh, both of our kids slept in our room. So I got between zero and four hours of sleep, uh, and this morning I'm on a combination of Mucinex, uh, tea with honey in it, and way too many cups of coffee. So we're going to see how this goes. Uh, if nothing else, it should be interesting uh, before we're done here today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, if you're new here this morning, this is your first time with us on a Sunday, uh, as Sarah said earlier, uh, welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, just to catch you up a little bit so you kind of understand what we're doing uh, during the next 40 minutes or so, uh, we have been in a series for the past three weeks called Give Like God. And in this series, we've been exploring how God's generosity towards us as followers of Jesus in turn makes us into generous people. That's sort of the big idea behind this series, relatively simple. Uh, In week one of the series, uh, Marcus helped us study this very countercultural statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Luke that, quote, life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. In essence, uh, more money and more stuff does not equal more life, at least not true life in the mind of Jesus. And then last week, we talked about what theologians tend to call stewardship, basically the idea that everything you and I have, all of our money, all of our possessions, everything we own ultimately belongs to God in the first place, and how in light of that reality, we should be managing what he gives us the way that he wants it managed. That's the idea of stewardship. That's what we covered last Sunday. This week, what I want to do is try to close this series out by getting very specific about how we approach our finances in order to make generosity possible in the first place. But I want to do that by looking at a somewhat random passage in the Old Testament about how to manage your crops. Now, I I highly doubt that many of you walked in the room this morning just really deliberating over how to manage your crops, even though this is East Tennessee, so I probably shouldn't rule that out, right? But probably that's not a question that you came in here wondering about this morning. But still, nonetheless, I think this passage is actually pretty crazy relevant to how you and I think about our money and our possessions, perhaps surprisingly relevant even. But we've got some work to do to sort of understand the context of the passage. So let's read the passage once again, and then we'll kind of dig our way through it little by little, verse by verse. Pick it up with me in Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, we've all been there overlooking sheaves in our field, do not go back to get it. 
Instead, leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widows, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Verse 20, when you beat the olives from your trees, as I'm sure we were all doing just yesterday out in our fields, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, okay, a vineyard, now we're talking, right? Do not go over the vines again, it says. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, it says, that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. All right, everybody crystal clear on how this passage applies to us today? We just close in prayer and head out early, go get some lunch or brunch. What time is it? Yeah, brunch. Go out and get some brunch. Probably not. In fact, I think reading a passage like this one even leaves us with a bigger sort of Bible reading question of when we come across passages like this in the Bible that don't make a ton of sense to us on the surface, what should we do with those passages? How should we understand them? How should we think about their relevance for us today? What in the world does this mean for us in the 21st century with no sheaves, no olive trees, no vineyards? This morning, I want to try and see if we can figure that out together. So let's see if we can wrap our minds around what is being said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. First, as Marcus mentioned a couple weeks ago, in a lot of ancient cultures, including the one Deuteronomy is written into, land and crops were basically the same as money. They were income, which means if, if you owned land and crops were growing successfully in that land, you were generally in good shape, financially speaking. So in this passage, I think God has in mind some people that have some degree of financial wealth, not necessarily crazy wealthy or anything like that, just some degree of financial stability, probably similar to where a lot of us in the room today are at financially, or at least similar to a lot of the families that we tend to come from. So if you were one of these people who owned land in the ancient world, when you harvested from the fields that you owned, you would instinctively gather as much as you could in each trip out to your field. So if it was olives, you would go through and you would bring in as many olives as you could. When you gathered grapes from your vineyard, you would go through and bring in as many grapes as you could. Then you would bring them all in, harvest them, and, and then you would repeat the process. You would go out a second time and a third time and a fourth time into the fields as many times as it took until it was all gathered, until everything was gathered out of the fields. Because if crops were your income, then you wanted to squeeze every last dime you could out of your income, right? That only makes sense. You wanted to maximize your profits. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Because otherwise, everything left out in the fields is just unrealized income, right? It's money that you could have in your pocket, but you don't. So the normal way of doing things would be to go back out into the fields as many times as it took until there was basically nothing left on the tree or the vine. That was the most logical thing for you to do. But God comes along in this passage and says to his people, you know what? Don't even go back out a second time. Gather as much as you can in one trip out to the fields and leave the rest out there and don't even go back for it at all. Just leave it there for people who need it so that they can come by and gather it. Don't gather as much as you possibly can from your fields. In fact, intentionally gather less than you can and leave the rest for whoever needs it. Now, from a business and finance perspective, 
That's kind of perplexing advice, right? I mean, just imagine for a second that you own a restaurant here in Knoxville, and someone with business experience comes in as a consultant, and they say to you, okay, here's what I want you to do. Every night from 5 to 7 p.m., I want you to charge people normal prices for your food. And then starting at 7 p.m. every night, with whatever food you have left, just cook it and serve it to people for free until you run out. How would you respond to such advice as the business owner of that restaurant? I, th- I think you would laugh in their face, maybe quite loudly, right? But that's not too far off from what God is recommending in this passage. Who does business this way? Who thinks about their money and their income this way? This is absolutely bizarre from a business standpoint. But God says, this is how I want my people to view their wealth. And to that, you might say, okay, but but that's back then. What what does that mean for us and for our personal finances today? I I don't have any fields, I don't have any olive trees, and I don't have any vineyards. Although if one of you do have a vineyard, let me know. I'm in the market for a friend with a vineyard. Just let me know if that's the case. But the question might still be to you, what can I glean from a passage like this one? What does this mean for me today? Here's what I would like to submit to you as the answer to that question. Although we may not do things in exactly the same way as they did back then, we absolutely have the same tendencies that people have always had. We still try to squeeze every last penny out of our incomes. We still try to gather every bit of income we can for ourselves. It happens in different ways today, but it absolutely still happens. Let me try to prove it to you. Something that is fascinating to me is that even though we live in one of the most affluent societies to ever exist in human history, we tend not to be very good at managing our affluence. 85% of Americans have less than $250 in available savings when they reach age 65. That means that without counting retirement funds, a person who has worked from age 20 has managed to save less than $6 per year. So why is that? How how can we be so financially wealthy as a society, as a whole, and yet so very bad at managing our wealth? I would argue it is because for most of us, we push our income to its absolute limits. If I get pre-approved for a $300,000 home, cool, I'll buy one for $299,900 plus closing costs, right? Because that's what I got approved for. If I can afford $1,200 a month rent, cool, I will rent a a place for $1,200, not including utilities, because I'm sure that money will come from somewhere, right? We prefer to push our income to its absolute limits. We want to enjoy the maximum standard of living that our income will allow us to have, and then maybe a little bit more on a credit card after that. Uh, As an example, I still remember years ago going car shopping by myself for the first time in my adult life. So so I went into it, I, I went to the dealership knowing that between savings and what I was comfortable with on a very small car loan, I could afford something like $11,000 on a car. Keep in mind, this is like $2,012. So $11,000 is a little bit different back then. 
So I went to the car dealership. They had me fill out some paperwork before I started looking at cars. I gave them my annual income, my basic expenses, that sort of stuff. And then they came back from the front office with a piece of paper that said, you're approved for a $28,000 car loan on your income. You can buy any car on our lot. It was a used car lot, by the way. You can buy any car on our lot. You're approved for $28,000 worth of car. So I called my dad and told him the great news. I was about to buy a $28,000 car. And then my dad quickly explained to me urgently that that's not actually the amount I could feasibly afford on a car. That's the amount the dealership wanted me to spend on a car. That's the amount that I could spend if I wanted to push my income to its absolute limits and run a pretty good risk of getting that car repossessed at a later date. But often this is just the assumption that our society operates on right? Is that this is how it should work. And we don't just think this way with cars. We think this way with most everything else too. It seems like these days, almost everything can be on a payment plan. Have you noticed this? So furniture, cell phones, even basic clothing items. Uh, I've, I've seen more and more clothing retailers lately offering a service called Afterpay. I don't know if you've seen this. I'm sure there are others like it out there. Essentially, Afterpay enables you to buy things as simple as clothing on a monthly payment plan. It's, it's basically modern day layaway, except with layaway, you had to wait until you could pay for the stuff to get the stuff. Now you just get the stuff and you get on a payment plan for it. So with Afterpay, you don't even have to wait. So, so stores like Urban Outfitters and Anthropology use apps like this. You can buy a nice jacket or whatever it is. You can pay for it with Afterpay and then pay it off in monthly installments. Now, nothing necessarily wrong with that, depending on what the item is and how much you need it. But here's what stuck out to me about that. You can do payment plans through Afterpay on items priced as low as $35. $35 items on a payment plan. Might I suggest that if you need to pay for a $35 item on a payment plan, you probably shouldn't buy that item unless it is absolutely necessary for your life. Or at the very least, you shouldn't be shopping somewhere like Anthropology. Because I think in anthropology, $35 gets you like a pair of socks, maybe. They might only give you one of the socks for $35, I'm not sure. But it certainly doesn't buy you much there. But here's my point, all of this, payment plans included, are evidence of how we tend to think about our income as modern Americans. We tend to think, what is the nicest thing I can possibly afford on my income? What are the most luxury items I can possibly have on what I make? Because that, obviously, is what I need to buy. We push our income to its absolute limits. Generally speaking, the way that we operate as Americans is that our standard of living tends to increase in proportion to our income. That's how we operate. Now, for for many Americans, I think our standard of living probably outpaces our income a little bit. But bare minimum, our standard of living tends to increase in proportion to our income. So so we get a raise, we buy a bigger house. We get a promotion, we buy a nicer car. 
That's how it works. Generally speaking, when we make a little more money, our expenses tend to expand to match the money that we make. This is just how we tend to operate in our society, and we don't even think much about it. It seems like the way life should work automatically. But the result is that over time, things that should be wants transform into needs, at least in our minds. Things that we thought might be nice to have if we had the money all of a sudden become things we have to have because we have the money. Could-haves become must-haves in our minds. Uh, I've seen this play out in my own life, just to be clear. Uh, When Anna and I first got married, I had just gotten my first full-time job at a church. Uh, I was making a whopping $24,000 a year before taxes. Uh, In general, I would not recommend going into ministry for the paycheck that it offers. But that's what I was making, 24,000 a year before taxes. At the time, my wife Anna was apprenticing at a hair salon. For those not familiar with the hair industry, apprenticeship is the word that they use when they want somebody to work a lot of hours without getting paid anything. So she was apprenticing at a hair salon making $0 a year. So for our first year or so of marriage, we were living off of 24 grand a year before taxes. And make no mistake about it, things were tight financially in the Bateman household. But you know what? We had everything we needed. Neither of us had to skip any meals that first year. We had clothes on our back. We had a roof over our heads. We could pay all of our bills on time. We had everything we needed. Now fast forward with me a little over a year later. At this point, our income had increased substantially. I had gotten a raise or two. Anna was working full-time and making more money than I was, which, again, was not hard because I was in ministry. So our income had at least doubled from that 24 grand a year that we made the first year. And yet, during that second year of marriage, when we were looking through our personal budget, I remember every single month, the thought as we combed through our budget was, man, we just don't have enough money for the things that we need. But here's the thing. Even though it might have felt like that statement was true, it wasn't true at all. That was a factually inaccurate statement. I know it was factually inaccurate because we had lived off of 24 grand a year for an entire year. It was actually incorrect for us to think that we didn't have enough for what we needed. So what happened between that first year and that second year? Why was 24 grand a year enough at one point in our lives and way more than 24 grand a year was not enough later on? It was because our standard of living had changed. What we thought we needed in life had changed. It had increased alongside our income. What we had decided at some point that certain things were needs that were not actually needs. There were things that we added to our life at some point because we had the margin to do so. And then as time passed, we had begun to operate as if those things were needs and not just wants. As if they were must-haves instead of could-haves. So I would be willing to bet that there are things like that for a lot of us in the room. I bet there are things right now in our regular monthly expenses that we have convinced ourselves are needs and are not actually needs. There are things that we once were completely content without having 
And now we are convinced that we cannot be content without them. And, and I don't pretend to know what those things are for every person in this room. Maybe for you, it's, it's Starbucks before you go to work each morning or on the way to class. Maybe it's a Netflix subscription. Maybe for you, it's going out to eat for lunch most every single day. Maybe it's a certain brand name of clothing or an amount of new clothing that you buy each year. They may not be bad things per se. They may just be things that you started purchasing at one point because you could, and then somewhere along the line, it went from a could-have to a must-have. And now it's difficult to imagine life without it. And thinking that way about your money and your possessions may feel harmless to you on the surface. But here's what I want you to see this morning in relation to our series. That way of thinking is not harmless at all when it prevents generosity. Because here's what happens. When we've, when we've pushed our income to its absolute limits and an opportunity for generosity presents itself in our life, our response in those moments is often to conclude that we just can't be generous. We don't have the ability to. We look at our budget, and because we've pushed our income to its absolute limits already, our budget really does seem to tell us that we can't afford to be generous. But in reality, it's just that we've set our budget up in such a way that prevents us from being generous. In other words, it's not that I can't afford to be generous. It's that I can't afford to live the way I'm currently living and also afford to be generous. And those are actually two very different assessments of our financial situation. So when we say or think things like, I just can't be generous, let me just ask us to be very clear about what we mean when we say or think things like that. When we say, I can't be generous, do we actually mean that we can't? Like, like, do we literally mean we don't have the ability to be generous towards others and still have our basic needs met in life? Or do we actually mean I can't afford to be generous and still afford my current preferred lifestyle? Do we actually mean I can't afford to be generous and also afford the latest, greatest iPhone on a payment plan? Do we actually mean I can't afford to be generous and still afford three new pairs of shoes this season? Do we actually mean I can't afford to be generous and still afford this $170 a month cable package with all the sports channels? There may be some of us in the room, to be sure, right now, who are in a place where we literally cannot afford to be generous, and that's one thing. But I'd be willing to bet for a lot of us what we actually mean when we say that is that the standard of living we have decided on does not allow for generosity. And that's different. And I think it starts with being honest about what our situation is. Now, here's where this all circles us back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I need you to see that that type of approach to our income, where we push our income to its absolute limits, is precisely how God is encouraging his people not to think in this passage. What some of us do with our budgets is actually very similar to what people back then were prone to do with their crops in their fields. And, and really what we're doing today isn't just like going back to gather crops a second time, like the passage says not to. It's more like going back a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth time. 
For, for some of us, it's more like taking out loans on the production of our crops for the next 5, 10, 20 years. So though there's some cultural distance between their world and ours, we have the exact same tendencies they did. We want to push our income to its absolute limits and then conclude from there that generosity just isn't feasible for us. But it is feasible. And Deuteronomy says, here's how you make sure that it's feasible in your life. So take a look at how this passage encourages us to handle our wealth instead. Let's look back at the passage one more time in its entirety. But this time, I want to read it to you from the ESV translation. It's a little bit more of a a literal word-for-word sort of translation. And I think reading it in this translation of the Bible actually reveals something even more clearly that is being said in the passage. So I have it up on the screen with you, just in case you only brought an NIV with you. Starting again in verse 19 of chapter 24, it says this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Notice this next part. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. Again here, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. One more time, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and therefore I command you to do this. So there's a little bit of a refrain in this passage. Three separate times, it says that the extra left in the fields is for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The passage says it's for them. So instead of God's people gathering everything they can from their fields, instead of pushing their income to its absolute limits, they should leave the extra in their fields for the sojourn of the fatherless and the widow. Now notice in the passage, it does not say that it would be nice for you to give it to them. It doesn't say that you should consider sharing it with them if you feel so led. It says that the extra in your fields is actually for those groups of people. In other words, in God's eyes, my extra rightfully belongs to those vulnerable groups of people. Now, let's just be honest. That idea messes with us a little bit, doesn't it? Because that means that God is saying that some of the stuff in my field that I own, that I planted, that I watered, that I helped grow, that stuff is for someone else who did nothing to earn it? I mean, those sound a little bit like fighting words to us self-made Americans, don't they? That's what the text says. According to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and other places in the Bible, there is a portion of our income that actually isn't for us, but rather is for the express purpose of generosity. And specifically, it says generosity towards those in need. So the passage mentions the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. These were groups of people in the ancient world who were especially economically vulnerable. So they were all extremely vulnerable to hunger and starvation, even death. So Deuteronomy says that God's people should leave their extra out in the fields for those groups of people. The sojourner, the orphan, the widow, 
in our day, maybe groups of people like the refugee, the foster child, the single parent, the homeless, those stuck in destitute or generational poverty. One way or another, there are people in our world with less than us, many of whom are in need, and God says, point blank, some of what you and I have belongs to them. And and the passage does not say, be generous to those people when those needs come to your attention. It says, leave the extra in your fields ungathered in advance for them. This is why we say to y'all often, I think we've said it several times during this series, budget for generosity. Budget for it. Don't just say, oh yeah, of course I'll be generous when the need comes up, when the time comes, when the opportunity presents itself. No, plan to be generous. Have an amount in your monthly budget that you are not allowed to even touch unless it's to bless somebody else with it. That's the principle at play here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's what it looks like to see that money as being for those who need it, for generosity. And lastly, in this passage, don't skip over why God's people are called to see it that way. So the last verse, take a look at that last verse in our passage, verse 22. Here's the motivation given for all of this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Long story made entirely too short for those not familiar with what's being referred to there. God's people were once enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. In other words, they were the foreigners themselves. But God, by his grace, rescued them out of slavery, led them through the wilderness into freedom, and generously provided for everything they needed along that journey. That's the story that this verse in Deuteronomy 24 is encouraging God's people to remember, to recall in their minds, which means that God, in asking his people to provide generously for the poor, is not asking his people to do anything that he has not already done for them. God is simply asking them to provide for other people in the same way that they've been provided for. He's asking them to respond to his generosity with their own generosity. What a novel concept. That would make a great subtitle for a teaching series on generosity, I think, personally. That's the subtitle of the series. I don't know if it's the subtitle of this series. He's saying to God's people, Provide for the foreigner, because remember, you were a foreigner and I provided for you. God's generosity is the motivation for their generosity. Okay, in a similar way for each one of us sitting here today, God is not calling us to do anything that he has not already done for us. All of us are called to live generously in light of God's generosity towards us. By committing to live on less than we could, we are actually remembering and reminding ourselves of God's grace towards us. You see, it's one thing for us to say things out loud like God provides. Christians love to say that, right? God provides. It's one thing to say that. Anybody can say that. It's another thing entirely to live as if God provides as if he has provided. 
It's another thing entirely to live as if God so provides that I don't need to squeeze every last penny out of my income to provide for myself. It's another thing entirely to provide for other people in need in the same way you believe God provided for you. And that's what we're being invited into as followers of Jesus, into radical generosity that reflects the generosity of God himself. So that being said, here are some ways that I think we could put into practice this idea in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I think a lot of it simply has to do with how we think about our standard of living as followers of Jesus. I think it looks like setting a standard of living that you will not go above at your current income level, even though you probably could. It's learning the art as a follower of Jesus of saying, you know what, I would love to live this way, but I actually only need to live this way. And practically speaking, I want to just offer you a few practical suggestions on how you might accomplish that on a day-to-day level. So here are some ways I think that help you curb your standard of living as a follower of Jesus. First, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down this equation for your budget. When it comes to your personal budget, income minus mandatory expenses minus generosity equals discretionary expenses. Income minus mandatory expenses minus generosity equals discretionary expenses. So when you sit down with your budget, you start with your income, obviously. You you start with what you bring in. Here's what I make. Here's my salary. And then from there, we should take out our mandatory expenses. So these would be things like a rent or or mortgage or utilities or groceries. Just to be clear, it would not include things like a Netflix subscription or a massive dining out budget, or a cable subscription, or elaborate vacations, or any of that. Those are what we might call discretionary expenses. Then, once you've written down all the mandatory expenses and nothing else, we ask the question, what is left over and who should that money be for? Before I spend money on things I actually don't need, who has needs that I can help meet? Who are the people I know of in our church, in my life group, or in our city, or in our world who have less than what they need? And how much of this leftover money in my budget can I designate for them? And then, and only then, ask the question, what are some wants that I have? What are my discretionary expenses? You do that last. I think that is a very practical way of learning to say, I want this, but I actually only need this. And there are other people who have needs that are more important than my wants. Now, if you're wondering what your standard of living should be in general as a follower of Jesus, here's what I think is a good principle. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would argue your standard of living should be lower than a person who makes the same amount of money as you and doesn't follow Jesus. Your standard of living should be lower than a person who makes the same amount of money as you and doesn't follow Jesus. If there's a person you work with who you know makes just about the same amount of money you do, all other things being equal, your house should probably be a little bit smaller than their house. 
Your car should probably be a couple years older, a little bit less impressive than their car is. Now, I understand there might be some exceptions and caveats to that principle, but generally speaking, I think it's a helpful principle. If you follow Jesus, that means that you are called to see and use your money differently, and there probably should be some ways where that is apparent in your standard of living. Another thing you may want to consider is what's called graduated generosity. This is not like generosity that has been to college. This is a different idea. Graduated generosity. So one pastor I know actually came up with this idea or maybe borrowed it from somebody else. One pastor I know each year, he increases not only the amount of his income that he gives away year over year, but actually the percentage of his income that he gives away. So if this year he gave away 15% of his income, next year he gives away 17% of his income. And he does that because he wants to ensure that as his income increases, his standard of living doesn't just automatically expand to match it. So just for most of us, not all of us to be sure, but for most of us, our income will likely increase over the course of our life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our standard of living should automatically increase with it. So as a way of guarding against that sort of thing happening, you may want to consider consistently increasing not just the amount of your income you give away, but also the percentage of your income that you give away. Another guy I know determines how much money he will give away using Jesus's template of loving your neighbor as yourself. That's one of Jesus's commands in the gospel, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So this friend of mine, he uses that principle as sort of a guide to his finances. So his thinking is that if Jesus tells us to love our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves, that means that I should be at least giving away as much to others as I spend on myself on discretionary expenses. So if I've got $75 a month that I spend on just things that I want, things that I think would be fun to have, if there's $75 going there towards myself, well, then there should be at least $75 being given away too. He uses that as sort of the principle for his generosity. And, and we could go on with a lot of other examples. I've got one more for you here in a second. All of these, though, are just suggestions, okay? So I'm not trying to enforce or promote any sort of legalism in regards to our money here. I'm just trying to give you ideas for ways that we might be on guard against the types of things that Jesus says to be on guard against in regards to our money. I realize that thinking about your income in this sort of way can seem radical or overwhelming if you're not accustomed to it, if you're brand new to following Jesus or brand new to sort of understanding what Jesus says about our money. So feel free, as we always say, to start small. Make it achievable. Do a little bit, a little bit at a time. Take baby steps. But regardless of your specific approach to this, I think we should all, as followers of Jesus, examine the things in our lives that are wants, versus the things that are needs. I think we should all be asking the question if there are areas in our lives where we are pushing our income to its absolute limits, squeezing every penny of income that we can for ourselves, and then ask what it would look like to see some of that money as being for others, like these verses in Deuteronomy talk about. And on that note, like I said, I've got one more thing for you. While we're on the subject of suggestions, I want to offer you one more before we're done. The last one is this, your coat. 
your coat. And I do actually mean that literally. Let me explain. Most of us walked in this room this morning wearing some type of coat or jacket. And I would guess that for at least the bulk of us in the room, that is likely not the only coat that we own. For most of us, we probably have multiple coats. We have a thicker one and a thinner one. We have a waterproof one and a not-so-waterproof one. We probably wore the waterproof one today. We have one in blue and one in black and one in brown. We have one in business casual and one that's like more sporty, sort of. Whatever the breakdown is, right? But I would imagine that at least a lot of us in the room have multiple jackets, and, and if I had to guess, that means that for most of us, we have the ability to own multiple jackets, right? So it's our extra. The jacket that we wore this morning is by definition our extra. And even if it is the only coat that we have, a lot of us have the ability when we leave here this morning to swing by Target or Old Navy or somewhere even nicer than that on the way home and purchase a new coat, right? And for many of us, doing that, purchasing a new coat today, would probably not even impact our bottom line very much this month. Yeah, not for everybody, but for a lot of us. Because we have extra in our income to be able to afford that. By contrast, though, this morning, a lot of us brought coats to donate for CARM. Knox Area Rescue Ministries is an organization in our city that helps clothe and help and equip the homeless population in our city. A lot of us brought coats this morning to donate. And part of the reason that we had you do that is because as of our last conversation with CARM, they are somewhere around 1,200 coats short of the amount of coats they typically like to have this time of year to help the people that they need to help. There are people living on the streets of Knoxville right now who may have to go through the winter without any coat at all. So here's my pitch to you, to all of us. What if this morning we were to take our coat and we were to leave it here for them to have? Now, doing that would mean that you would leave here a bit cold. Uh, I think it's still raining. You would probably leave here a bit wet as well. Doing that would mean that you would be cold and get rained on for the 30-second to minute walk to your car, and then you would get in your probably heated car, and you would drive home, or you would drive to Target where you would buy a new jacket. But there are people in our city right now who do not have the ability to do any of that for themselves. So what if you gave them your coat? Now, I want to be very clear on this. You do not have to do that. Maybe you really like the coat that you wore this morning. And you don't want to give it away. That's totally fine. Chances are you can go to a store this afternoon. You can purchase a jacket that you are not attached to. You can take it to CARM. And chances are that jacket will be just as helpful as the one that you have on right now. That's great. But at the same time, and I want us to ignore this part, at the same time, I wonder if taking the coat off of your back this morning or off of the seat back on your chair and giving it away 
could be a powerful way to immediately, practically apply the things that we've talked about for the past three weeks. That life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. That everything I have is ultimately God's, and I am to manage it and use it as he sees fit. And that ultimately some of our extra is actually for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. I wonder if giving of something we actually have and like wouldn't be a tangible, memorable way of obeying Jesus in this arena of our life. Again, I'm not doing this to shame or guilt anybody into anything. My experience as a pastor is that guilt and shame are pretty poor motivators over the long haul. So I'm not trying to guilt anybody into anything. You can walk out of here this morning still wearing the same coat that you came in with and nobody is going to look at you or judge you. And if they do, they're wrong. But if you feel like the Holy Spirit might be telling you to obey in this way, Who are we to say no to that? I think of Paul's words to one of his churches where he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Don't hear something that could be very practically helpful to you in restoring your heart to where it needs to be that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do and say no to that just because you think it's silly. Just one suggestion this morning of how we might obey Jesus and his commands and how we think about our money and our possessions. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna conclude just like we always do on Sundays. We're gonna sing and celebrate Jesus together through song. We're gonna have the communion tables open where we remember the sacrificial generosity of God himself by sending Jesus to the cross on our behalf. And as we do that, there will be these plastic bins up by the stage, up front. And maybe for some of us, as we approach those tables to take communion, we first lay down our coat as a way to provide for someone who needs them more than we do. And when we take communion, we remember that what we've been given in and through Jesus is far more than he will ever ask us to give. Let's pray together.